Well, it's uh, great to have you guys here tonight. And you know, after a, after a couple of recent Highland trips that I've been a part of, some people are starting to learn an interesting fact about me, which is when you travel with me, bizarre things always happen. Okay, so that, that's just a fact of the matter. I've been on a plane before when we saw an erupting volcano below. Weird, bizarre things happen. It just so happened that something like that happened to me when I was in college. I was on a, on a short road trip in my old car, which was just a stunner of a 2005 Nissan Altima. It was not at all. It was this really ugly maroon color. It was missing three door handles. It was covered in dings and scratches. Seriously, it had one working door handle by the end. You can ask Sam. It was the junkiest car in the world. And over the decade that I had this piece of junk, it broke down on me four times, count them four times, while I had this car. So this is one of those four occurrences, right? So I'm coming off on an exit ramp from the interstate, and I'm headed down, and I'm trying to make a left because it kind of uh, crosses into a cross street where you either go have, have to go left or right. And I'm trying to go left, and the light from pretty far off is yellow, and yellow usually means speed up for me. So I'm accelerating to try to catch the yellow light, and right as I commit to the turn, out of nowhere, my entire car just shuts down. Like, the electrical shuts down, the power steering kicks out, the engine stalls, and I'm like, I have no idea what's going on in my cars, so what do I do? I just slam the brakes, rookie mistake, slam the brakes, so now guess what happens? Yes, that's right, I am stopped right when oncoming traffic is barreling towards me. Well, thankfully, they see me far enough away so everyone slows down just enough time so they don't T-bone me. I have to do the walk of shame trying to push my car to the shoulder. There's not much of a shoulder there, so I'm like barely out of the way of traffic. I'm trying to restart my car. It's not starting. And who decides to pull up? Yes, our friend the highway patrol, right? So he pulls up and turns his lights behind me, and he just comes up and he says, uh, Sir, do you realize this is a very dumb place to park your car? <laughs> He's like, there's not much. He's like, yes, I know. I, I, so I, I'm, you know, trying to bite my tongue a little bit, not be sassy, because I'm like, we're doing twos here. So I'm explaining what everything that just happened to me, and with a look of confusion and slight condensation, uh, condens condescension. There we go, condescension. He looks at me, goes, "Let me get this straight. Your car died." right in the middle when you hit your brake. I'm like, I know, it wasn't the wisest move. So he goes, okay, so you have it. So I, so I said, watch, watch. So I pull out my key, I put it in, and I start it up. Guess what happens? It starts. And he's looking at me, and he's thinking, you little rascal. I'm like, no, I, I promise it wouldn't start. So after a nice lecture about being a more responsible driver, he let me go, and I went my way and immediately took my car to a mechanic. Now, after about uh, a few hours, the mechanics figured out what's going wrong. Do we have any mechanics in here that think they know what the issue was? Anybody have an idea? Here's, the, here's, here's what it was. My key was bad. My key was bad. Seriously, my key was bad. So car keys, yeah, I, I, it's the weirdest, I know. I was, bizarre things happen when you travel with Andrew. That's the moral of the story. So my key went bad. So in modern day keys, they have a transponder chip that basically is for the security system so people can't hotwire your car. So the transponder chip communicates with the security of it. And when the code doesn't get sent right, your car won't start. 
In my case, apparently, it just decided to shut down right in the middle. So the car just stopped. And every, so essentially, my car thought I was trying to steal it. And it shut everything down, right? So that's what happened. It was the key went bad. The weirdest thing. I've never had that happen again. Uh, again and I, I was so surprised by that. But it's funny when you think about the entire car shut down just because you were, I, the wrong key was in the ignition switch. Nothing worked right just because of one little tiny key going bad, right? Now, I want us to think about that picture a little bit because this summer, we're going to talk about the topic of joy and finding complete joy. But here's the thing. There's only one key that can properly ignite joy in our lives. There's only one key that can truly unlock joy in our lives. And the problem is we live in a world where there's a lot of bad keys. There's a lot of wrong keys. And when you're using the wrong key, the entire system shuts down. You won't be able to find joy. You won't be able to access the joy and satisfaction and meaning you're searching for. Our world is filled with a lot of bad keys. Some people in the world look to the key of money to try to unlock joy in their lives. How many people have fallen for the lie that money will truly bring them happiness? Well, I don't have a number for that, but I can give you a number that can help paint a picture. $140 billion. That's how much Americans spent last year on the lottery and gambling. $140 billion. The idea of, you know, playing to get more money because that's going to make my life a little bit better. That, that's a pretty significant number. There's a lot of people that think if I just get the right amount of money, happiness and joy is just the next major purchase away. And happiness is just on the other side of getting the money to buy whatever I need. But a lot of people realize, I mean, we see examples year after year, the most ri the richest people in America are not usually the happiest people in America, are they? We see story and story again of oftentimes money only buys them pain and problems. Some people turn to the key of relationships thinking that will fill the void of intimacy they're looking for in their lives. They think if I just find that boyfriend or girlfriend or the right person or that husband or that wife, it's going to fill that void. My life is going to be complete and everything is just going to be better and I'm finally going to be joyful. But the problem is when we idolize someone and we make them our savior to rescue us, we're going to realize at one point or another they're not perfect. <laughs> they make mistakes. They'll let us down. And then so many people just kind of exchange them for the next person, trying to rekindle the flame of infatuation, thinking maybe if I just find someone else, I'll find joy this time around. Some people look to the key of success and influence and think, you know, if I just reach my goals, if I'm just successful in life, then I will be joyful and I'll be happy. But, you know, I can't help but think of someone even like Michael Phelps, the most successful Olympic athlete of all time by far. The guy won 28 medals, but in an interview last year, if you listen to his words, he talked about the low after every single Olympics. 2008, he got busted for doing drugs, and he said in this interview that he turned to drugs to try to numb and self-medicate the pain of all the things that was going wrong in his life. In 2012, after his triumphant victory and all these medals, he said he hit his lowest low where he would spend three to five days a week alone in his room, unable to sleep, unable to eat, and he contemplated just not even living anymore. Here's a guy who's one of the most successful, wealthiest, popular people in the world, and yet he's not joyful. But to the world, that doesn't make sense. They think you have it all. What's wrong? But the problem is they're trying to use the wrong key. 
And joy doesn't work that way. The keys of the world can't bring us joy because God has designed us to only find joy in him. Jesus Christ alone is the living water that can satisfy that thirst that we all have. But so many people in the world are just content to be chugging salt water and thinking, why is this not taking care of the problem? Why are things not getting better? In a recent Barna poll, uh, 75% of Americans said that they are actively looking for something to give their life more meaning. They're actively looking for something because they said, my life is not meaningful. And if we're being honest, the number's probably even higher than that. That's just three out of four that admitted that. Three out of four people that said, there's got to be more to life than what I'm experiencing right now. I'm, where's the meaning? Where's the joy? Where's the things that I, I, I so desire and I so crave? I, 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 the, life isn't giving me what I thought I was signing up for. So the question is, what's the answer? How do we find that uncircumstantial joy? How do we find that meaning and that purpose? Well, that's what we'll be looking at in our passage tonight in Philippians 1. So as you turn to Philippians 1, here's just a little bit of helpful historical background as we jump into this book. So this is a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul while he is under house arrest in the great city of Rome. While he's writing this letter, uh, he's actually chained to a Roman soldier. He's not allowed to go anywhere uh, outside of being chained to this uh, guard who's watching over him. Not only that, every day looming over Paul is the reality that today could be the day that he's summoned to go before the emperor. And if things don't go in his favor, he is going to die. So he doesn't know what's going to happen. And yet in the midst of all these trials and struggles and difficulties, In this four-chapter letter, Paul addresses the topic of joy or rejoicing 16 times. 16 times. It's one of the most joyful books in all of Scripture. And the reality is, Paul, that's weird. That's not natural. You're on death row and you're talking about how joyful you are. Why? (laughs) How are you joyful? What's going on? And I think we see a little bit of the secret of that tonight in Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to start at the second half of verse 18 and then read through the rest of the paragraph. And here's what Paul says. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. He says, I'm rejoicing because the gospel's going out. I I, I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and through the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, these things, this, this trial, it will turn out for my deliverance. He's talking about my salvation there. He says, I know that this is part of it. God will save me from this. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He says, I can find joy because I know God's going to give me the strength to do what I need to do. And he's going to be honored. And that's the greatest thing that I desire. Look at verse 21. This is where we're going to land tonight. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then in the next few verses, he talks about how uh, living in the flesh means remaining and having uh, fruitful labor for the kingdom, but then dying is so much better because then he gets to go and be with Christ, which is far greater than anything else that he can imagine or anticipate. And here's the key that Paul gives us to finding joy that he's talking about in this passage. The key to uncircumstantial joy is being captivated by Christ. That's what he's talking about. Especially as we zoom into verse 21, he says, I'm captivated by Christ. 
And because he's captivated by Christ, and because his relationship with Jesus is the source of his joy, nothing can take his joy away. Because if his joy was in his appearance, or it was in his freedom, or it was in his power, or his prominence, or any of those things, all of those have been robbed of him. They were all taken away. But since his joy was not in his circumstances, but something that transcended his circumstances, it was in being known by Christ and being loved by Christ. He said, no matter what happens, I am sure, as he would write in Romans 8 as well, he says, nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nothing can take away my joy because my source of joy is being loved and known by Christ. So tonight, if you're part of the 75% of Americans that are looking for more meaning and purpose and joy and satisfaction in your life, realize the answers that the world give you will never fix the problem. God has given us the key, and the key is being captivated by Christ. So with the rest of our time tonight, I want to focus in on verse 21 and look at the two elements of being captivated by Christ that Paul talks about here. The two reasons that joy only comes from being fully captivated by Christ. The first one is this. He says, for me, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. Here's our first point. We need to realize that Christ alone is a cause worth living for. Christ alone is a cause worth living for. Here's what Paul says. For me, and it's really awkward in, in the Greek language. He essentially says, for me, to live Christ. He doesn't even have a verb there. He's just kind of equating the two. So he's saying, my life equals Christ. So he says, the greatest meaning the greatest goal, the greatest purpose of my life is to love Jesus, to expand his kingdom, to further his gospel, and to bring him glory. He says that is the goal and the fuel of what my life is all about. And Paul is saying that that gives me a cause worth living for. Why is that? Because Paul says if we invest our life in anything else, it doesn't matter in light of eternity. Everything else that the, world authors, uh, that the world offers, the moment we die, it stays here. It, it's fruitless. It's empty. It's what Solomon would call vanity in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, Pastor Sam did a great job earlier this spring in our young adults group of going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And I think that is a great book that teaches the emptiness and the vanity of the world apart from Christ. You have Solomon one of the wisest, one of the most influential, one of the most powerful men who ever lived. And as he writes the book of Ecclesiastes at the end of his life, he's looking back and tracing over the mistakes he's made. Because when he started, when he started out as king, he was close to God. But what did he do time and time again? He compromised. He made mistakes. He searched for all the things that the world offered. And because of that, it left him feeling empty and broken. He's the wisest guy in the world, but he realized that human intellect still can't think away all the pains and the problems of this life. The guy had 700 wives and 300 concubines, but he still couldn't fill that void of intimacy that can only be found in a relationship with He's the most powerful king of Israel at this time, and he uh, sets up this empire, but he realizes when he dies, he's going to have to give it to his son, and his son's an idiot, and immediately the empire splits in two, and he has to hand the keys to the kingdom over to someone who can't even uh, run with it, and then he realizes he's the richest guy in the world, but he can't take one shekel of gold with him into eternity. 
when you invest your life in all the things of this world, it really doesn't matter. Because though you might have the most impressive portfolio here on earth, it means nothing if your eternal portfolio is empty. Don't make the wrong investment is what Paul is talking about here. He's saying investing in the cares and the concerns and the things of this world is a terrible investment because the moment that you die, all of those, all of those investments are depleted. In eternity, our titles, our money, our uh, popularity, our looks, our degrees, our possessions, they all disappear. We don't get to bring those with us when we go. It's actually what Paul would say in Philippians 3, they're all rubbish. That's what he says in verses uh, 7 through 8 in Philippians chapter 3. Paul says this of all those things, that title, that prestige, all those things. He says, but whatever gain, worldly gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as junk, as garbage in order that I might gain Christ. He says, all the things of this world, they're rubbish, they're junk because I've found something so much better. It's like one of the parables that we'll be talking about this summer in young adults, the parable of the pearl of great price. When you find something that's so valuable, you don't care what you have to sell and get rid of. He says, I've found something so much better knowing who Christ is and having that relationship with him. It reminds me of, I've said this before, but it's because it's a quote that so oftentimes sticks with me. The missionary C.T. Studd once said, only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. He's saying we only have one life to live and it's really, really quick. And the only things that last and matter in light of eternity are things that we do for Christ. True joy is found through investing our lives in the kingdom. It comes through being a sacrificial servant in this life rather than being a comfortable consumer. And that inverts the logic of this world. The world tells us that happiness comes by being a consumer, by being the center of our worlds and just consuming as much as we can. That's the logic of this world. But God says, no, I've designed you not to be consumers, but to be servants. I've designed you to find joy and to function best when I am the center of your life, not when you're placing yourself at the center of your life. And that defies the logic of the world, but that defies the logic of a lot of Christians. How many Christians are much quicker to ask the question, what would God do for me? Instead of, what would I do for God? If we're being honest, and we looked at our lives right now and we said, which question is the one that we most ask? It might be, God, what are you doing for me right now? How are you answering my prayers? How are you making my dreams happen? What are my goals that you need to be fulfilling? Instead of asking the question, God, what can I do for you? As long as we're the center of our life, joy will always elude us because God's designed us to find joy and to be most satisfied when he's most glorified through our lives. Satisfaction comes through serving and loving the Lord. There truly is nothing better than knowing Jesus. There's nothing better than experiencing his love and forgiveness. There's nothing better than being free from the shackles of sin and shame that we are all enslaved in by being broken, sinful people. 
There's nothing better than trading in the emptiness and brokenness of a wasted life for a life that matters and makes a difference in eternity. Do you want to have a life that has meaning and purpose and, and, and matters? Do you want to leave a legacy of real significance? If you want to invest your life in things that truly matter, then we need to make sure that the purpose of our lives is to serve Jesus, to expand his kingdom, to share the gospel, and to bring him glory. Because those are the things that have the potential to make a difference for all of eternity. Ultimately, Paul is reminding us that joy comes from trading in the rubbish and junk of this world for the glory of a relationship with Christ. There's no greater joy than living out our identity as his children, as followers of Christ, as servants of the Lord. I was just thinking about this today. I was reflecting a couple months ago in March when we took a team down to Mexico from our young adults group. And if you were to go around and ask them, probably the moment in this year that they've experienced the most joy, I'm guessing a lot of them would say they experienced it when they were down in Mexico. Uh, Maybe I'm putting words in their mouths, but you can talk to them after and see what they'd say. But I think the reason is, So many times when we're in the normal activities of our life, we get so consumed on being a consumer and doing the things that we want. But to pause and spend an entire week fully focused on the purposes of uh, of sharing the gospel, of mentoring and discipling others and just investing ourselves fully in the mission, there's tremendous joy that comes from that. And it was so cool to see the team come alive and to walk away and saying, my life was changed because joy comes from when we serve God the Lord. So our first application to point tonight, if Christ really is the only cause worth living for, what are the distractions that are getting in the way? If we had to put in a word for me to live is blank, what would the word be? What right now is your life centered on and all about? Could we honestly say for me to live is Christ? If we want to be able to say that for me to live is Christ, then that means we're going to be serving him. That means we're going to be obeying him. That means we're going to be prioritizing the things that he prioritizes. So for some of us, if we really want to embrace that and say, yeah, for me to live as Christ, that might mean some changes in our lives. There might be some ways that we need to start obeying the Lord. Maybe for some of us, that's following one of his first first requests for his disciples and taking that step of obedience and getting baptized and saying, you know what? I've never been baptized even though I've put my faith in in Jesus and I want to take that step of obedience and publicly declare that I'm a Christian for all to see. For some of us, that might be considering going on a short-term mission trip. It's like, that's going to cost me vacation time. That's going to cost me some money. It's going to cost me comfort to go to a third world country. Great, get out of your comfort zone and try something new and, and, and see what it looks like to go out on mission for the Lord. For, for others, maybe it's taking the next step and using our spiritual gifts at our local church and saying, fine, I got to buckle down and God's given me a gift and I want to give back and invest in the lives of other people. For others, maybe to live for Christ means overcoming those walls to evangelism that we've built in our lives and saying, you know what? If I want to focus on things that matter in light of eternity, this person's soul is so much more important than me potentially embarrassing myself with a gospel conversation. Because that is the impact, can impact eternity if they come to know Christ. It's not going to matter in 80 years if they laughed at me because I'm a Christian. What are those areas that need to change if we truly are going to live for 
Christ. Joy comes through remembering that in Jesus, we find a cause worth living for. As we labor for Jesus in his kingdom, it's labor that's going to impact eternity. It's labor that ends with Jesus one day saying to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's labor that ends with the joy of spending eternity with Jesus in a new heaven and a new earth, free from all of the sin and the pain and the brokenness of this world. And that really brings us to the second part of our one verse tonight. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Uh, And that second part, if Christ is a cause worth living for, then Christ is a king worth dying for. And the second part of Philippians 1.21, Paul says, for me to live is Christ, but then he throws in this weird section that doesn't make sense to the world. He says, to die is gain. How can Paul say that? To die is gain? No one in the world really thinks that or understands that. What does that mean that dying in the light uh, uh, could ever be interpreted as gain? Well, Paul says, just to clarify here a little bit, Paul in this moment, he's not being suicidal. Paul's not saying that this life is so bad that he just wants it to end. That's not what he's saying. In fact, later on, he says that if he continues on this earth, that means fruitful labor and Jesus will be glorified. And he says, and in that, I I rejoice. So that's not what he's talking about here. What Paul is ultimately saying is, I'm not afraid of death because I know that Christ has defeated death for me. It says the sting of death has been removed. I don't have to be afraid of it anymore. It says the trials and the brokenness of this life and all those things, death is the end of that. Because I know without a shadow of a doubt where I'm going when I die. I get to go and be with Jesus. And he says that is far better. That's far better than anything in this world. This week I was reading a a news article that was entitled Keanu Reeves Stunned Stephen Colbert with Explanation of What Happens When We Die. That was the title of the news article. But essentially what happened was this. Stephen Colbert is kind of a late night interview guy and he's talking to this actor Keanu Reeves and he says, what do you think happens after we die? And Keanu Reeves thinks for a moment and then he turns around and he says, well, I think the ones that we love will miss us. Is that true? Yeah. But that's the only thing that he was certain about. What happens to you after you die? He essentially is saying, I don't know. The only thing I'm certain of is that I'll be missed. If that's your view of death, and you don't know what waits on the other side, and you have no hope and no joy, you could never say dying is gain. If that's really what death is about, then Paul's a lunatic for saying this. But Paul knows something that's, that Keanu Reeves doesn't know. He knows that he doesn't have to be afraid of death because as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, when Jesus died and was raised again, he defeated the sting of death. He took it away. The pain of death has been defeated and he doesn't have to be afraid of death anymore because he knows death now is a lot more like just driving through a really long tunnel. Okay, just hear me out for a second. Hear me out. Death is like driving through a really long tunnel. When Megan and I went over to Iceland for our honeymoon, uh, it, we, just, we got to see so many beautiful different sites around that country. And in one particular day, we were going up to this northern peninsula that was filled with beautiful waterfalls, rock formations. It was absolutely stunning and incredible. But to get there, 
you had to drive through this tunnel that I can't pronounce. Icelandic words are like 18 syllables long, filled with consonants. I think it's halvergjadefer, tunnel. Okay, so that's the tunnel. <laughs> and in this tunnel, it's only one lane this way and one lane this way. It's four miles long and it's 541 feet underwater. So it's going like under the ocean. I'm claustrophobic. That's not, wow, it's oh, right? That's, I'm claustrophobic. So here I am driving my little tiny car because, you know, we rented the cheapest one possible. So we're in this little tiny car. I'm just staring. I'm like, I don't want to do this. Like we're 500 feet under and it's four miles long and it's like this wide. So there's literally like this much on either side. So we're just driving through and I, I am hating every second of it. I am not enjoying the tunnel. But what do I know? I don't have to be afraid of the tunnel. It's been around for 30 years. It's not going to collapse. And on the other side of the tunnel, the destination is worth it, right? And when we drive through the other side, amazing. We see the most beautiful waterfall of all time. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible. So essentially what Paul is saying is that we no longer have to fear death. It's not that Paul's saying he's looking forward to it. It's not that he's saying dying is something small or insignificant or trivial. He's not doing any of those things. But he says the sting of death, the fear of death has been removed by recognizing the amazingness of the destination that we are arriving at on the other side of death. So just think about it this way for a moment. Think about it this way. Let's say that right now I go out and I charter a plane to take all of us from uh, right here in Wausau, Wisconsin, all the way over to Maui, Hawaii, right? So I'm just super generous. We're going to go and do that right now. We get to escape this rainy, cold weather and go over to Maui. Now, as we're on this plane, we fly. We have about a 12-hour flight, and we finally land in the Maui International Airport. Now, I've never been to this airport, so we're going to speculate a little bit here, but let's say that once we get off this plane, it's a really nice airport terminal. As we go into the terminal, we look around, and immediately, it's just covered in glass. And as we look through the glass, we can see off in the distance the beautiful sandy beach. We can see the palm trees, the ocean. It's just a sunny, gorgeous day. And immediately, we're thinking, wow, this is, this is way better than Wausau in spring with all the rain. Like, this is nice. So you're looking around. This is actually a really nice terminal. So after a while, we're waiting for a few hours, and then a shuttle bus pulls up to take us to the number one beach in all of Maui. And it's there waiting to take us there, right? So we start gathering up the group and we go over and there's a few people that are still in the souvenir shops looking at overpriced trinkets and a few people, you know, going over, paying 20 bucks for a burger and buying some overpriced food. And then there's like, you know, Sam napping in the window or something. And it's like, it's like so we're trying to round people up and we say, come on, it, it's time to get on the shuttle bus to go to the beach. And they look at us and they say, man, oof. How about I take a, how about you guys go and then I'll go in a couple days because this terminal is really nice. I really like the terminal. Like it's got good food. It's got like, I'm not done with this terminal yet. So I'll go to the beach in a couple days. You guys go check it out and, and I'll make my way over there eventually. I, I, I'm enjoying this terminal a lot. The idea would be, no, 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 no. You don't, you don't understand. You don't fly to Maui to stay in the terminal, right? That's, that's, that's a temporary resting spot to get to the final destination. Well, the Bible tells us we're strangers and sojourners in this world. Where this is kind of our terminal. And there's times where the terminal's nice. Absolutely. There's good things about being in the terminal. 
but we're not called to live in the terminal. We're headed to a better and final destination. That's where we are ultimately headed. And in that moment, we need to understand, uh, in this analogy that I'm using, it breaks down a little bit because we don't have control of when we leave the terminal, okay? That's ultimately in God's control. And God might let some of us stay in the terminal for a really long time. God might call some of us to go home from the terminal a little earlier than we anticipated. But we don't have to be afraid of when the shuttle bus arrives because we have an absolute certainty of where it's taking us. The terminal is not the final destination. Spending eternity with Christ is. And because of that, we need to view ourselves as strangers and exiles in this world. We can't be so in love with this world that we lose sight of our desire to be at home with, with Christ as well. Christ is a king worth dying for. Christ is a cause worth living for. So we can say as long as God keeps us in the terminal, great, I'm going to live for him and I'm going to work and I'm going to do awesome kingdom work and it's going to be great and I'm going to rejoice in that. But Christ is also a king worth dying for that says, you know what, I'm not afraid of death because when he calls me home, I know I get to spend eternity with him. And when we do those things and we view life that way, we find the key. We find the key to true joy because the source of my joy is being captivated by Christ. Whether that's the glimpse of Christ we see in this life or when we get to see him face to face in the next life. So two final words of application tonight. So how do we apply this to our lives? The first one is this. If dying really is gaining for the Christian, for the person who's responded to the gospel, repented of their sin and put their faith in Christ, we need to ask ourselves tonight, would dying really be gaining for me? Because though we know for Christians that when they leave the terminal, the final destination is eternity with Christ, that's not true for people who don't have a relationship with Christ. The final destination is somewhere far worse than the terminal, spending eternity separated from God in a place called hell. So I can't preach on this topic without asking you to consider the thought, where am I going if I were to die today? Could I say that to die is gain because I know I would be with Christ for all of eternity? Or am I really not sure because living really isn't for Christ right now, living's for me. Is there anyone out there tonight that says, you know, I need, I, I need to come to that place of repenting of my sin and putting my faith in Christ. But for those of us who do know that dying would be gaining, how well are we doing with making sure that our living really is for Christ? It's the second word of application. So I want you to think about it this way. I have a little visual aid to help me here. I've got a file cabinet that I'm gonna roll over. Now imagine that this file cabinet contains records of everything that we do in our life. Every word that we say, every action that we take. And at some point right now, this is our investment essentially, right? This is what we're investing our life in. How well are we doing with our investment if we were to open up the file cabinet and see what's inside? For some of us, we might pull out a file that's Packer games that I've watched and it's filled to the brim, right? For some of us, we might pull out a file and it says cool places that I've gotten to travel to, especially for young millennials, right? That's pretty high on our list. We've got a lot of pages in there. For some of us, we might pull out a, a file and it's sports stats that I've been able to memorize because some of you guys are crazy with that. Not me, but like some of you, you got pages and pages. But then how about we pull out the file and it's Bible verses that I've memorized. 
and we open it up and maybe there's about one page in that file. And then maybe we look at the next file and it says people that I've gossiped about. We open it up and sadly it's kind of full too. But then we look at the next file and it's people that I've witnessed the gospel to, people I've shared the gospel with. If we were to open up the file cabinet of our lives tonight, what would we see recorded there? Would we be able to honestly say to live as Christ? Or would there be a lot of other words that would probably take precedent over that? So as we consider that, as we think about that now, we're gonna have a special response song that actually encapsulates exactly what we talked about tonight, to live as Christ, to die as gain. I encourage you, you can just sit, you can be contemplative, you can uh, sing if you want, you can pray, just take that time to reflect and think about those things that we've just been talking about. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Father, it's a weighty passage to read that verse, to live as Christ, to die as gain, because even as I think over those words right now, I realize how desperately short I fall of that every single day. If I was to open up the file cabinet of my life, I'm sure there are so many areas of distraction and so many wasted pages. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for asking far too often what you can do for us instead of what we can do for you. Help us to realize more and more that the key to joy and meaning and satisfaction in this life is making sure that you are the center of it. So Father, help expose and remove anything that's in our way. And help us to be able to honestly say tonight, for me, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Amen.